You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Monster House presents. Monster Talk is supported by listeners like you. Find out how you can contribute via Patreon or with reviews at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Your contributions, large or small, make a huge difference. Thanks. Feed me. Oh, take it easy, Dracula. What do you think I'm carrying here? My dirty laundry? where a man-eating, talking plant gives homicide something to think about. And I didn't do it. Do what? Whatever. Ever see this man? Man, see picture. Why are you so nervous? It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant, hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. That opening clip was from the 1960 comedy horror film, Little Shop of Horrors. It's the story of a meek florist shop employee whose life is changed when a mysterious plant that he's been raising turns out to be a blood-drinking, meat-eating, sentient weed with some very sinister plans. In real life, plants can seem safe enough. I mean, sure, some plants have thorns or produce toxins, but generally, people don't think of plants as monsters because, you know, they tend to sit still and mind their own business. But fictional plants have produced plenty of horror. 1951's Day of the Triffids gives us a world where plants can move and kill people, and as if that weren't bad enough, much of the world's population in that film has been blinded. 2008's film The Ruins has some truly disturbing plants at a Mayan temple that combine body horror and carnivorous plants with high mobility. But real carnivorous plants of the earth are just as fascinating as the fictional ones. They move, they eat, they eat animals, they eat insects, and they defy our expectations for what a plant is and can do. And today, we're going to learn all about them from plant expert and author Peter Diamato. So find yourself a sunny spot, make sure you're hydrated, 
And let's get into some monster talk. Today, we're going to be talking with Peter Diamato, who is the author of the book, The Savage Garden. And he's also the CEO of California Carnivores. And today's topic is carnivorous plants. Now, obviously, the show is called Monster Talk, and we use monsters as a springboard to talk about science topics. And we've stretched the idea of what a monster might be to in all sorts of interesting ways. But this is classic. This is the kind of stuff we really, really sort of began with. And I love getting back to this kind of these are real world things which often have monstrous connotations. Yeah, but we've had a few requests for this topic as well. So it was definitely time to, to treat this one. Well, I'm glad you invited me. Thank you. <laughs> Who else would we invite on? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it was it was actually monster plants that got me into this incredible hobby. Uh, when I was a kid growing up in the 60s in New Jersey, I loved monster movies. I subscribed to Famous Monsters magazine. And, of course, they always had ads for Venus flytraps, uh, you know, in the back of the magazine. Mm-hmm. And I loved movies like Day of the Triffids and the original Little Shop of Horrors. So I ordered flytraps. And uh, there, you know, I lived on the coast of New Jersey. And, uh, you know, the directions for how to grow them was very dismal. And they never survived more than a month or two. And I thought they were tropical. Um, I had lizards and snakes, and uh, my first house, pl- my first house plant in my bedroom was a parlor palm, and uh, I tried growing the fly traps there on a windowsill, you know, in bright light, and they just died. <laughs> and uh, what happened was uh, the following spring, and this is when I was around in the seventh grade, I volunteered to do a, a essay on fly traps in my science class, and. Uh, I thought my mom could write out another check and I could give Venus flytraps a second try. And this kid behind me in my class, he grew up there in the Pine Barrens, which is uh, right where we were located, uh, down just north of Atlantic City. Mm-hmm. And he said he knew where all these fly-catching plants grew. And it was the end of the school year. You know, it was like late April or May. And he took me to this lake that was right in the middle of town. Uh, the town of Tuckerton, and I couldn't believe what he showed me. They were on fly traps, but they looked like they came from outer space. Um, I later, we we dug a couple of them up. And of course, you know, these days that's kind of, uh, you know, something that you shouldn't be doing out in the wild. Uh, Much of those plants were later destroyed by some homes being built on the lake. But I took them to class And even my teacher did not know what they were. So I went to the library and I found Paul Zoll's National Geographic article from 1961 called Plants That Eat Insects. And here were the plants that I I was shown. Uh, They were pitcher plants and sundews. And I just became addicted to them. Wow. Paul Zoll's article was actually a kickstart for the whole modern carnivorous plant hobby, which really didn't take off until the 70s. But his article made me realize that Venus flytraps and many other carnivorous plants did not necessarily come from the tropics. In fact, the United States has more carnivorous plant genuses than anywhere else in the world. 
And I found out that fly traps grew only on the coast of North and South Carolina. Uh, that meant that they got frost and uh, hot summers. And the pitcher plants, well, the, the types that we have here in the States, um, it's the only place where the Venus flytrap grows, what's left of them down in the Carolinas. Uh, the genus Saracinia, which are American pitcher plants, they mostly grow in the southeast, like the Carolinas, Georgia, Alabama, the Gulf states. But there's one species that grows all the way up through Canada, the purple pitcher plant which is the one that I was shown in New Jersey. We have many varieties of sundews, which are plants that have tentacles that have globs of glue on them. And uh, when they catch insects, the tentacles curl up over the insect and sometimes the whole leaf does. I could talk a little later about Charles Darwin because he was the one who proved that these plants were carnivorous. Um, in fact, he thought that sundews were disguised animals. He found out that they were more sensitive to taste and touch than any animal that he studied. We also have butterworts, which are flat, sticky-leaved plants. We have the cobra plant, which is a cousin of the American pitcher plants in the east. It's only found in northern California and southern Oregon. And we also have bladderworts here, which are very strange plants that uh, have the fastest moving traps in the world. They're mostly terrestrial in wet soils or aquatic, and they catch little creatures in these uh, little vacuum bladders that suck things like mosquito larvae and stuff into them. So anyway, it was a big surprise when I was a kid. And I slowly started to buy the plants from uh, places like the Carolina Biological Supply Company. And I started to learn how to grow them. And here, here I am now, you know, 50 years <laughs> later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's just, yeah, you've just treated so many things there. Uh, I, I know that there are hundreds of different types of carnivorous plants. And uh, yes, Darwin was very interested uh, in them. So there's a lot for us to talk about here. Could you just give us a general definition of carnivorous plants and what they are? That's still controversial. There are many different indications or, you know, different things that these plants need to do to be considered carnivorous. Mm -hmm. But there's also many plants that are suspected of being something like sub-carnivores. Okay. As I explain in my book, you could spray a rose bush with a diluted fertilizer like miracle Grow. The plants will absorb the nutrients right through their leaves. There are many plants that defend themselves with uh, like sticky glands, things like potato plants or petunias, but they don't actually have enzymes or other means of dissolving and then ingesting the minerals. <laughs> However, sometimes they might be able to if it rains on the plant as the plant's decomposing or if nutrients get washed down into the soil. But carnivorous plants primarily have to lure insects. They have to somehow trap them. Often like with pitcher plants, they drown them or with Venus fly traps, you know, they snap shut on them. Then they have to be able to somehow dissolve the insect, either through enzymes, 
that will help to break the insect down, much like stomach acids in animals. Mm-hmm. Or they may use another type of life form to do the digestion for them. There are plants like sticky sundews and other plants in Australia, for instance, that have assassin bugs that can live on the plant without getting trapped. They will suck the juices of insects that are trapped, and then it's their excrement that the plant is able to dissolve. Um, So those are the main, you know, critiques. When I talked to Blake earlier this week, he mentioned that they're just this past couple of weeks ago, a paper has been published about a new carnivorous plant. And of course, right away on all the carnivorous plant forums, it became very controversial. But it's a common weed on the West Coast, and it has sticky stems um, so that tiny insects like aphids and little midges and stuff will get stuck on this sticky stem. But they did experiments with putting like radioactive isotopes into fruit flies and then feeding these to the plant. And then these isotopes showed up being inside of the plant a few days later. So that to them was, you know, an indication that this was the plants were somehow being digested and dissolved. But there are many plants that may do that that we just haven't really found the evidence for. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that there was there are carnivorous plants that work in a, a mutually beneficial relationship with insects to aid digestion. Is, is that considered to be uh, when you when you have a plant and an insect working together? Is that a symbiotic relationship? Yes. Oh. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, did you did you warn him about your puns? I did not. Sorry. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> But that's that's so neat. Uh, yeah, that news article was really surprising, and I guess well, and I bet this is something we can discuss back in. Uh, you mentioned Darwin proving this, mm-hmm. but I guess part of that uh, news story around the uh, new plants was how they were able to trace that the plant was digesting the insects. Was they I guess they fed the insects a particular isotope, uh, I think, of nitrogen, and then they checked the plant later and it had metabolized that isotope from digesting the insects. Is that, did I read that right? I think that's what I read. Yes. That I only read the popular article about the paper. I myself have not yet read the paper. Gotcha. But I eventually will, you know, but a lot of it also is often over my head. I'm not a botanist, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I'm not a taxonomist. Um, I'm not even a trained horticulturalist. I just learned how to grow them, and that's my primary specialty. But let me mention something else that to show you how bizarre these plants can be. There's a huge genus of tropical pitcher plants called Nepenthes. They grow in Southeast Asia, places like the Philippines, Borneo, Vietnam, Indonesia. Most of them are mountain plants. They like the cooler, wetter climates in the tropical mountains. They have pitchers that can be rather small, maybe two or three inches you know, in height, but they also have some very large pitchers. There's two or three species that are documented as being able to catch and digest animals as large as rats, and they digest them all the way down to the bones. 
But there's a plant called Nepenthes loei. And uh, this pitcher plant, all these pitcher plants have lids on them. And the lids mostly try to keep rainwater from diluting the prey that they have caught and drowned in their digestive juices. But Nepenthes loei has a very upright lid with all these little tendrils on it. And it secretes this white, gooey looking, uh, they almost look like slug or snail eggs, which is what botanists thought they were when they saw them in the wild, this white stuff growing underneath the lid. Myself and there was one other fellow in Florida, we were the first ones to have mature plants in cultivation back in the 1990s, the early 90s. And we noticed that this white stuff started to appear in our plants, in our greenhouse. And we knew that this was something being secreted by the plant. It wasn't snail or slug eggs. Well, there was a botanist named Charles Clark. He heard, we, we notified the society and he spent several days examining the Nepenthe loeis that grew on Mount Kinabalu in Borneo. To his astonishment, he saw tree shrews, which are little rodent-like things, and birds landing on the pitcher. And these pitchers are like gourd-shaped. They had very wide mouths with a very thin lip so that the animal can actually perch on it. And they were eating this white stuff. And then they were defecating into the pitcher. They were crapivores. Uh, <laughs> it was an astonishing discovery. And in fact, they believe this white stuff has a laxative in it. So the plant actually lures these animals to eat this stuff and poop in the pitcher so that they, that they get their nutrients that way, as well as catching insects. I am so happy right now. I am so happy right now. <laughs> <laughs> This is so great. Yeah, you never thought there would be shitiferous plants around, but, but there are. <laughs> no, no, this is fantastic. Yeah. Incredible. So, yeah, we've got so many other questions to ask you. So you mentioned, we've mentioned Charles Darwin a few times. So he wrote a book in the 19th century about carnivorous plants, didn't he? He cared more about carnivorous plants than evolution. In fact, he told, uh, I believe it was the botanist Asa Gray, that he cared more about sundews than the origin of all the species of life on Earth. Wow. He wrote Origin of Species in about two years. He spent 20 years on his book, Insectivorous Plants. And there had been rumors, you know, about some of these plants being carnivorous, like the Venus flytrap, which was the first suspected plant back in like the 1670s when the first governor of North Carolina discovered flytraps growing all over Wilmington, back when, before all the development drained all the wetlands. And so Darwin, uh, he started to look at the plants that were suspected of carnivory, mostly sundews, but also butterworts and the Venus flytrap. He never studied pitcher plants, but he suspected that they also were carnivorous. And he performed many, many incredible experiments. I was in the eighth grade when I first read Darwin's book, and I couldn't believe I was reading Charles Darwin. 
But the book was extremely easy to understand, and it taught me the scientific method where he comes up with an idea and then he does experiments on it and then uh, tries to see what the results are. So, yes, it was Darwin who wrote the first uh, book on insectivorous plants, as he called them. So what methodology did he use to definitively show that they were, in fact, digesting the insects? Well, all kinds of, you know, experiments with uh, like feeding sundews, things that had nutrients in it and that those that didn't. He even blew his nose and put snot on them. He put drops <laughs> of urine on them. Um, they wouldn't eat things like a piece of wood, you know. But if it had nutrient worth, like he fed them bits of cheese and little bits of meat and milk, eggs, and they would eat that. The tentacles would curl up and the leaves would curl up. And sometimes the plants would literally drool digestive juices. So uh, he, he did it systematically, you know, testing all of these different substances on the plants um, and then also seeing what effect it had, you know. When the plants were well-fed, they flowered more, they produced seed, they produced offshoots, where plants that were not getting insects or other forms of nutrients, they kind of just hung on, you know, but they didn't really thrive and propagate. There are lots of videos on YouTube at the moment with people feeding uh, Venus flytraps, all different kinds of food, from Tic Tacs to salami and pizza and other things. <laughs> yes. What, did they like Italian food? <laughs> they seem to like just about well, everything. Well, actually, you know, a lot of the plants, like sticky ones, like the sundews or the butterworts, they will actually do, you know, have some vegetarian food. Uh, seeds, for instance, of other plants may fall on them. And uh, it's been found out that they do, in fact, uh, digest these products, too. Well, you know, I think one of the signature things that people think about is the Venus flytrap moving. Mm -hmm. They move like an animal. They snap shut. Now, we know there's non-carnivorous plants that also move. Ferns, for example, come to mind. Right. Sensitive plants. Yeah. yeah. So so I, I'm I don't know if this is something you've looked into, but I'm fascinated by, is that just parallel evolution? Or did a plant with those motion abilities become carnivorous? Or did the carnivorous plant develop motion? Like, do we have any sort of ideas around, or have you looked into like the sort of evolutionary history of these plants for the ones that use motion like that? Well, not much is known because there isn't that much fossil evidence of plants. You know, Darwin was the one who actually realized and found out, and I, I can't remember the exact type of experiments he did, but it's electricity that causes the movement in most of these plants. It's still not quite clear exactly how flytraps work, and it gets very almost metaphysical. But flytraps, they have little trigger hairs inside of the trap they have nectar glands around the inside rim of the trap. You know, they look like taco shells. And then they have these long cilia teeth. An insect has to hit two of the trigger hairs within 22 seconds or one trigger hair twice. And what happens is that a little jolt of electricity runs through the cells on the outside of the trap. 
and it causes those cells to elongate within a fraction of a second. And it causes it to to snap shut. The trap initially forms a cage with those teeth. So if an insect is caught, if it's too small for the insect to bother eating it, it can escape through the jail-like teeth. But if it's large enough and it can't escape, it's thrashing around trying to get out, hitting those trigger hairs again and again. And the trap slowly squeezes shut. Then it starts to secrete digestive acids and enzymes. The insect pretty much suffocates. And then the soft parts of the insect are liquefied and digested. When the trap reopens the shell, the exoskeleton is left behind. And it was also found out more recently that sundews, the tentacles of sundews, also use electricity to cause the cells on one side of a tentacle to elongate and bend. But what isn't known, you know, sundews seem to anticipate the direction that an insect that is trapped on the tentacles, the direction that it's trying to escape, and tentacles on the other side of the leaf may start to bend forward in order to trap the insect, you know, to catch it before it's able to get away. But there's still many mysteries that we just don't understand. Right. It, it looks like there's a lot of intent, you know. I mean, it, it, it happens so fast, but it, it creates the impression. For when you're used to plants not moving at all, it's quite eerie to see these things snap shut or wrap up an insect. Oh, yes. Yeah. But I was fascinated by the, the electricity thing. I guess that makes them power plants. Yeah, <laughs> it's an electrifying hobby. I'm telling you. It is. You. Um, Darwin also wrote a fascinating book called "The Power of Movement in Plants," and uh, one of the most interesting things, aside from covering Venus flytraps and sundews in that book, he covered telegraph plants. And I was fascinated by the telegraph plant, but I never grew them until I was able to obtain seed back in the 1990s. And they have found out even more about the movement of telegraph plants. Telegraph plants are part of the bean or the legume family. And uh, they have these uh, long stems and then these long, narrow, spade-shaped leaves but they have these tiny little leaves at the base of the big leaf where it attaches to the stem and they rotate. Nobody really knew why Darwin realized that temperature had something to do with it. When it went over 70 degrees Fahrenheit, these little tiny leaves would start to move around. And he thought maybe they were just trying to scare off predators Well, I recently saw a documentary. Well, it's been in the last 10 years. Researchers in Germany, they realized that it was sound that made these little tiny leaves spin around. And so they did experiments where they had people singing to the plants. And all of a sudden, all these little leaves start, they start calling them the dancing plant, you know. (laughs) But it's weird stuff like that, you know. So so I know, like, what I remember from high school, you know, botany was you've got different uh, sort of motional senses in plants. You've got, like, geotropism, where the plant moves away from gravity, phototropism, where it moves towards light. So is that 
I guess that would be audiotropism or something like that. I guess I have no idea. <laughs> Most of that's also it's just over my head. You know, it's just wonderful to watch them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so did I mean? Wow! When they start walking, I'm getting out of the business. Well, you know that that's <laughs> yeah. funny because there's a lot of urban legends around plants. I see urban. There, there's folklore around plants, and there's there's mm-hmm. trees in some parts of the world that have extensive root systems that are like above ground and they look like they might mm-hmm. go for a walk and there's legends that they mangroves do. and yeah 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 so i you know i don't think there's been any evidence that plants do go for walks other than tumbleweeds but yeah no, except <laughs> slime mold slime oh mold. yeah well yeah and, and that's a horrifying uh, i i had slime mold that was given to me and i fed it oatmeal and i kept it in a petri dish and it it got out. It, it escaped. Wow. I don't know where the greenhouse <laughs> went to. Did, did, you, did you put up little lost slime mold signs around the neighborhood? You know, it was like, <laughs> no, I did look around, you know. But anyway, it was very creepy, you know. Yeah, very. literally. It, yeah. It had been a few days uh, before I realized that the damn thing had gotten out of its Petri dish. You know, it, it lifted the, the lid of the dish up and slithered away. <laughs> Incredible. So today's episode of Monster Talk is sponsored by BetterHelp. My family, I don't know about yours, Karen, but my family uh, has had a lot of stress and anxiety over the past year and a half. And one thing that's really been helpful is to be able to engage with counseling services uh, and having somebody, you know, professional who they can talk to. I think it's great to be able to talk to friends. It's great to be able to talk to family, but sometimes you just want to talk to someone not directly in your life on a day-to-day basis, like colleagues and and family members. You want someone that uh, is going to be trained as well to be able to, to deal with things like depression and anxiety and sleeping issues uh, and grief as well. Um, Relationships, uh, so many things, family conflicts. That's the thing. I mean, there's so many issues in each individual's life that they may not feel like they can talk to with a friend or family member. And having someone who is going to be discreet, that you can talk to from the comfort of your own home, but securely Mm -hmm. and conveniently, or you can text these are powerful tools for your mental health. And we talk about brains all the time on this show and consciousness Mm -hmm. and thinking and cognitive bias and all these things. But you know, the, the human brain's really complicated and being able to treat the various ailments is not something a lot of people have an opportunity to do. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. many, you know, people don't have an opportunity to get that in their insurance plan or it's not available in their small town having a reasonably priced service like this is really great. And during the pandemic too, it's just nice to be able to do these kinds of things, as you said, from the comfort of your own home and not have to go into a, uh, an uncomfortable waiting room. And I think it kind of conjures up ideas of uh, lying on a, a couch in a, uh, a an office somewhere. And uh, I, I think that the idea that you can text someone and that you've got that accessibility to that person uh, at all times. I mean, you can have a session in your pajamas. What's doesn't get better than that. Yeah. <laughs> in that, <laughs> that waiting room in a, in a, in a mental health place is always like, I, I, you know, it, it is to me, it always felt a little uncomfortable, like a little bit cold and clinical, you know? And so everybody's like basically looking at the floor or looking at a magazine, you know, you know, and it's like, th- this is so much more private and, 
you know, it's just great. It's great. So I, I'm very excited to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. We are all fortunate in that we've been offered a 10% discount for our listeners if they would like to join for the, the first month. How can they get that? Well, they can go to our unique URL. That's BetterHelp, which is H-E-L-P dot com slash Monster Talk. And there they can join the over 1 million people who've already taken charge of their mental health. And again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com forward slash Monster Talk. So I'd like to know a little bit more about the uh, the kinds of animals that these plants eat. You mentioned rats earlier, and I've heard of frogs. Uh, anything else that's surprising that they've managed to eat? It is primarily insects and animals from the crab family, like spiders and things. Some of the aquatic, well, only a couple of species of the aquatic bladder warts have bladders that are large enough to catch fish fry or tadpoles. When it comes to rodents, uh, it's only the tropical pitcher plants. Nepenthes raja is one that is probably the most famous. Uh, The pitchers can be like 12 inches across. And it probably doesn't lure the rodents like the way the Nepenthe loi lured rodents to eat that gooky stuff, you know, as food in order to get them to crap in the pitcher. But probably the rodents were looking for water or they were trying to get some of the insects that were trapped in the pitcher. And they would fall in. They were unable to get out. There's usually as much as half, about a quart of digestive fluids in there, and they would drown. And uh, it would take a number of weeks, but eventually everything would be dissolved except the bones. We've had uh, little mice caught in some of our tropical pitcher plants at the nursery. And uh, we didn't even know it until the pitchers got older and we had to cut them off. And then we would sometimes do autopsies on them and cut the pictures open. It was quite startling, you know, to find bones of little animals. In them. Yeah, it's like looking at a shark stomach in a horror movie. What? <laughs> yeah. There's also, there's a sticky plant in South Africa called Rorigula. It's almost extinct. There's only two species of them. At first, a uh, hundred years ago, they thought they were sundews. They look kind of similar to sundews with having a lot of sticky glands on them. But these glands, they don't have a glue that kind of pulls off or pulls back insects that get caught. It's more like a sticky resin. It's almost like tar or amber. And uh, the plants that in our greenhouse, and it has been seen in the wild, and other nursery people who have grown large rorigulas, they can get several feet in height. Birds have been caught by them. Uh, we have found feathers on our, our rorigula plants in our greenhouse from birds that have, you know, accidentally gotten into the greenhouse. But I wonder if the rorigula plants actually attract birds in some manner, because we started hearing more and more about this from other growers but nobody's done any kind of experiments to find out. Okay. And in general, how are creatures lured to these plants? Is it through smell or color? Mostly nectar. Plants like sundews that glitter like diamonds, 
um, they actually think that most of the insects are caught accidentally, although they may think that the glue drops are nectar, like on a flower. Mm-hmm. But it's the pitcher plants that produce a lot of nectar. The American pitcher plants that I mentioned that grow here in the United States, the trumpet plants that used to be, you know, across thousands of acres of the southeast in the wetlands down there, they have nectar that has drugs in it. Flies and yellow jackets, if they're drinking the nectar on the pitcher, in just a matter of moments, the insect seems to lose fear. I've done TV shows where I have shown uh, myself petting flies as they're drinking the nectar. Usually you can't get, you know, within a foot of a fly without it flying away. But the nectar seems to intoxicate them and they lose their fear and paralysis starts to set in. Oh, it sounds like me eating donuts. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, um, the insect then eventually falls into the pitcher where it drowns. I wrote a, a paper for the carnivorous plant uh, newsletter, the Journal of the Society, where uh, I had a broken pitcher that was tilted downward onto a greenhouse bench upside down, and it was covered in nectar. It was still alive. Ants found it, so there was a It was swarming with ants, but of course the ants were not getting caught. They weren't falling in the pitcher. But I noticed that there were hundreds of dead ants underneath this pitcher where all these ants were drinking the nectar. So I watched with my little micro lens. And to make a long story short, basically their legs crinkled up first. They lost the ability to walk and they fell on their backs And their abdomens and their head and their antennae would all be thrashing around. And slowly the uh, abdomen and then the thorax and then eventually the last things to stop moving were the antenna. And other ants were like panicking, you know, not they were contacting each other through the antenna. And then they were carrying a lot of the dead bodies away. Um, But it's nectar that's often drugged. That is the primary lore for these plants, as well as color. You know, the color of a lot of these plants is just spectacular. Yeah. yeah. Does that mean that the pitcher, if it's full of nectar, is it a modified flower? No. Okay. So it's not part of the reproductive system. The flowers are completely separate. Okay. And the plants are so smart when it comes to evolution, like American pitcher plants, When they come out of their winter dormancy, when they stop growing for a few months and then it starts to warm up and spring comes, the first thing they do is send up these tall, gorgeous flowers that are on stems about uh, one to three feet high. They have big, beautiful petals. They could be yellow or red, but they flower first and they get swarmed by bees the bees pollinate the flowers. And, it, and then when the flower is pollinated, it usually takes about one to two weeks before the petals drop off. And that's when the first pitcher traps start to open. They don't want to catch their pollinators. So they flower first, and then they eat the insects afterwards. Incredible. <laughs> so, yeah, it is incredible. Nice. 
Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. We've got a podcast recommendation I think will be really fun and or useful for Monster Talk listeners. I Know Dino, the big dinosaur podcast. Studying dinosaurs can teach us about the prehistoric world, but also the world of today. For example, migration patterns of dinosaur lineages can tell us about the Earth's changing continents. Climate models of dinosaur ecosystems help us understand global warming. Studying dinosaur diets can help show the link between plant and animal evolution. Talk about paleo. Hmm. In many dinosaur injuries, <laughs> paleopathologies are the first known occurrences of diseases. A new episode of I Know Dino comes out every week with new dinosaur discoveries you won't hear about anywhere else. You can find I Know Dino on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Wow, that that is very cool. So... You know, uh, one of the things that you mentioned that happened when you tried to raise Venus flytraps, you put them in the sunlight and it didn't really work out. And I, I had the same experience. I Well, I had them on a, on a, bright, a bright windowsill that was not mm-hmm. getting direct sun. Yeah. I had some in my kitchen and we it gets a lot of sunlight. And, and I... I I just could not make them live. Uh, and I wanted, like, for the, I mean, I didn't buy any of these until I was in my 40s. So I had kids of my own. Um, my parents weren't the type of people to, they understood that I love science, but they weren't really financially invested. <laughs> my father used to drive me in his Cadillac out to the bogs in New Jersey. He would never get out of the car. He would read the New York Times as I sloshed around with all the picture plants and stuff. Oh, wow. And he said it was the most wonderful experience of his life <laughs> to That's be in the woods in the peace and quiet. But I, I know what you mean. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll tell you how to grow a Venus flytrap. And uh, it's truly amazing that once you know what the method is and you have the correct environment to grow them, they're, they're rather simple. First of all, remember the plants are warm temperate, which means that they do have a dormancy in the wintertime. That's usually like November, December, January, February. They need to be kept rather chilly. And they can take brief freezes. It's no problem for the temperatures go to go down into the 40s and 30s. Um, but the fly traps, they need that chilly rest period in the wintertime. Then, and they can take temperatures briefly down into the 20s. Remember, they come from the area of Cape Fear, North Carolina. So they do get frost and stuff down there. Then they also like sunlight, not bright light, but direct sun. 
not for one or two hours, but for several hours. In fact, all day sun uh, often really benefits most carnivorous plants the best. Really? I would not have guessed that. That's amazing. So, Another thing that's very important is that these plants grow in very nutrient-poor soils. Mm-hmm. And it's generally peat moss, sphagnum peat moss, without added fertilizers to it maybe mixed with a little horticultural washed sand or a little bit of the white perlite. The peat moss can get very spongy and it absorbs water beautifully. Then the most important thing is water quality. If you're using tap water that has a lot of minerals in it, you're going to rot the fly trap or the pitcher plant or the sundew pretty quickly. Um, the water needs to be usually below 100 parts per million in dissolved salts. And a lot of tap water, you know, is like 200 or 300 uh, parts per million. There's some areas that have really good pure water. Uh, Atlanta is one. New York City is another. Um, but otherwise, people should use reverse osmosis water or distilled water or good plain old rainwater. And the pots with the soil need to sit in some of the shallow water all the time. Do do you need to let your water, if if you're in a chlorinated water system, do you need to let it sit overnight? The chlorine chlorine has no harmful effects on the plants, nor does the liquefied chloramide have any negative effects. But it's the minerals, and you don't ever want to put fertilizer in the soil of carnivorous plants, or at least not that much. But you can spray the foliage with a diluted fertilizer, um, which can often help benefit the growth of the plant if it's not catching a lot of insects. So sun, an acidic peat moss-based soil, pure water, chilly winters for their dormancy if it's not a tropical plant. And uh, in most of the United States, you know, like from New Jersey, in fact, the people have bog gardens outdoors in New England. And some of them, if they if it's going to be a really bad, frosty winter, they may throw burlap on top of the bog during the worst part of winter or hay. But if they get some snowfall, you know, that also will help to protect the bog in really cold winter areas. Um, but all the way down through the southeast and, uh, you know, through much of Texas and here on the west coast, if you're not, you know, in the high deserts or anything, a vast majority of carnivorous plants thrive outdoors year round. Now, one other thing from my experience that I have watched a lot of nature documentaries and love shows about plants and animals, uh, insects, all those sort of things. I'm a big biology nerd, as our listeners were probably aware. But I uh, was disappointed. Uh, a lot of those documentaries speed up the process for these these plants. These plants take a while to digest. So if you have a lot more flies than you have plants, uh, I guess what's the good ratio if you want to you know have a few of those specialized, like for the Venus flytraps to have those open and ready to go if you, in case you get flies in the house. I mean, like if, if I actually literally wanted that to augment my ability to have the best, yeah. the best type for catching the largest quantity of insects are the American pitcher plants. 
the trumpet varieties, like oh, yellow cool. trumpet plants and uh, sweet trumpet plants and white trumpet plants. They have pitchers when they're mature that are usually about two to three feet in height. And one leaf, wow. one pitcher can catch thousands of insects on a deck or patio in the sun, or if you had an extremely sunny windowsill. Again, sun is one of the most important things beside the pure water. Venus flytraps, you know, they'll have at most five or six traps at a time. And the traps last about, oh, maybe two months, and then they just wither and turn black. Or if the trap has caught an insect, it can catch two or three, and then it will turn black. So anyway, fly traps would be very limited when it comes to any kind of insect control. You know? Gotcha. Uh, sticky sundews, especially ones that have larger leaves like cape sundews from South Africa. They make beautiful sunny windowsill plants or under grow lights. And they are really adept at catching things like um, fruit flies. A lot of people will grow them if they're growing orchids, like under grow lights. They put a few sundews in there and they will eat many of the fruit flies that breed and the fungus gnats that breed in the wet soils. So if uh, carnivorous plants, if they're in good soil and they have plenty of water and sunlight, must they still be carnivorous? Unless you fertilize the leaves. Okay. Yes, because the peat moss and the purified water has very, very little nutrients in it. And it's primarily nutrients like nitrogen and phosphorus and things, you know, trace elements that richer soils have or that fertilizers have that you put in the soil. But carnivorous plants don't really like fertilizer in the soil. They've adapted to do all of this because they're, you know, adapted to pure uh, low mineral soils, wet soils, you know, in bogs and wet savannas. And if if you do give them too much fertilizer, they don't benefit from it. They die, right? That's that's. They often will die yeah. or have deformed leaves and stuff like that. Especially if you put fertilizer in the soil, you know you'll see them, uh, you know, die rather quickly. Yep. Yeah. So are they found the world over, or only in specific parts of the world? You know, they're they're found all over the planet. But it has to be in, you know, habitats that are generally wet or at least wet part of the year. Like, for instance, Australia has more sundews with the sticky tentacles than anywhere else in the world. Uh, there must be a 100 species that, that grow in Australia alone. But in Western Australia, they're what, what's known as tuberous sundews. And Western Australia, it's a Mediterranean climate. They get most of their rain during their cooler winter months. And that's when all vegetation in the wild starts to grow. I'm talking about areas like Perth in uh, Western Australia. Um, so even the sundews, they come up when the wet season begins. And then after they've grown and flowered and set seed and eaten lots of bugs, then 
summer starts to approach, you know, late spring and summer, and the rains stop and the soil dries out, and the plants die down to tubers under the ground. They're usually about the size of a pea or up to a walnut, and it's generally several inches underground. That's a very unusual habitat, but there's many dozens of these winter-growing sundews or tuberous sundews. But most of the plants need wet soils year-round. And uh, you could find, like, for instance, the plant that Darwin loved, Drosera rotundifolia. It's the common round-leaf sundew. It grows from uh, Alaska all the way through Canada. Uh, It comes down here, and there's populations in California and Oregon. It's all over the Great Lakes, along with many other sundews, and it grows in uh, New England and like New Jersey northward, and then into uh, Great Britain and Europe and parts of Russia. So that's a species that's very widespread, and it's found in sphagnum bogs, which is what peat moss comes from. Mm -hmm. Uh, The sphagnum bogs are very acid, very low in nutrients. Tropical pitcher plants, as I mentioned, they're mostly mountain plants of Southeast Asia. Butterworts, which I haven't even really talked much about them. Um, When I was a kid, there were only about 30 butterworts known, most of them in Europe or North America. And then a few of them were known to come from Mexico. And butterworts have flat leaves that are pressed down on the ground. They have very sticky glands that catch little gnats and fruit flies. And they grow here in the United States and Europe. But it's in Mexico that they have discovered about 100 new species just since the 1990s. And Mexico has a wet summer, but then it has a dry winter. So the butterworts are carnivorous during the wet season in the summer. And when the soils dry out as the dry winter comes, then they turn into succulents. They're not really dormant. They just stop being carnivorous because there's not enough water for glue or digestion. And they often flower at that time, too. So they're beautiful. They make great windowsill plants. You keep them a little bit drier when they're in their succulent stage, which is usually around oh, November until around March. Then they go carnivorous again and the leaves change and then you keep them wet. So so you love carnivorous plants, warts and all? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) People will often ask me, you know, what's your favorite carnivorous plant? And and I honestly tell them whichever one I'm looking at. Oh, love the one you're with. I've heard that song. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they they are pretty uh, spectacular. Just to give you an idea, when I started the nursery, California Carnivores, this is back, you know, around uh, 1989 or, yeah, around 1989, I had this wonderful collection. It had grown tremendously since I had moved to California. And I was asked by uh, what was then known as the Landscape Garden Show if I would do a display on behalf of the Carnivorous Plant Society. We had about a dozen members in the Bay Area of San Francisco back then, only about, you know, 12 or 15 of us. Well, nobody wanted to help me with doing this display. 
And I wanted a career change. So I wanted to wholesale commercially grown fly traps and sundews. At the time, almost all fly traps were dug up out of the wild, you know, and then packaged and sold. So I was hoping I would get about a dozen nurseries to buy my wholesale plants. So I set up this beautiful display. And in three days, almost 6,000 people (laughs) took our cards. They were so shocked at what I had on display there. You know, it just it just it just blew people away. Mm-hmm. And I managed to open up a nursery to the public the following year. And there was a TV show. He said, when you open to the public, you let me know. It was called Bay Area Backroads. And uh, he did the show on us that spring. Everything sold out in two weeks. It was unbelievable. And then we were in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the San Francisco Chronicle. And I've done about maybe 300 uh, newspaper and television uh, you know, shows on these plants. And it's because they're so beautiful and unusual. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And another thing, one other thing that, you know, let me mention uh, when the new version of my book, The Savage Garden Revised, came out, I insisted on having a woman's hand feeding a pitcher plant a cockroach. And one of the reasons is that back in like the 80s, there were no women growing these plants. There were one or two women who worked in botanical gardens that were familiar with carnivorous plants. But this was considered a boy thing. And I really am glad that I helped to change a lot of that. Literally 50% of our obsessive customers are women. And it's fantastic. It's a fantastic thing to see because these plants are fun to grow. You know, you could grow them out in your garden or, you know, in a terrarium. And uh, I'm really glad to see how everything has really changed with the hobby. I was going to say, that's a great photograph and it's a fantastic book as well. So our listeners should, should definitely go and check out your book. It's Yeah, they can get autographed copies at CaliforniaCarnivores.com. Cool. Yeah, it's in its... Uh, this revised edition is in its 10th printing already. And wow. so, so it's been through about, I don't know, about 25 printings. I've been very, very thrilled. And of course, I wish there was a book like what I wrote when I was about 14, 15 years old, <laughs> when there was no information out there on how to grow them. Uh-huh. And uh, much of the book comes from not only my experience, but all of these other hobbyists who've grown and shared their ideas about how to grow carnivorous plants. It surprises me what you said about women uh, not really being a big part of the market back then, because I think maybe my first exposure to a carnivorous plant, at least in in pop culture, was Morticia Adams and her plant, Cleopatra. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Yes, yes. So it's almost like you're saying that show was fictional, and that just frightens me. because. Well, you know, sometime if you ever want to have me back on and just discuss real and fake carnivorous plants in books and the cinema. Well, that actually, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, we've, we've discussed picture plants. Could we briefly discuss motion picture plants? 
Oh sure. Yes. No. The the first the first carnivorous plant that I've ever found in movies was that 1922 version of Nosferatu, the Dracula movie that was a silent, you know, 1922 mm-hmm. uh, version. And Van Helsing feeds a fly trap, which of course was fake, <laughs> but they feed it and he said how, you know, plants fed on blood. That blood was like, you know, the most important thing in the world. <laughs> but then, uh, you know, it carnivor- real carnivorous plants showed up in the – there's a Peter Lorre movie from the 1930s called Mad Love. He has a cobra plant that he and his maid feed little flies to. He keeps it down in the basement. <laughs> and then Catherine Hepburn in the movie version of Suddenly Last Summer. Um, her maid gives her a box of flies to feed to what she called a Venus flytrap, but they actually made a fake pitcher plant with a lid that closed. And this is from Tennessee Williams' play. And it was actually, I have a misquote in my book, because I assumed it was Tennessee Williams who wrote uh, uh, in that play, The Venus Flytrap, A Devouring Organism, aptly named for the goddess of love. It was actually Gore Vidal who wrote the screenplay for the movie. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) And even though the flytrap is mentioned in the play version by Williams, it was Gore Vidal who actually uh, wrote that. But then you got into the science fiction thing. And the first real big one was uh, John Wyndham's Day of the Triffids. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, The book is fantastic. They made a so-so movie of it around 1960, which really changed a lot and lost much of what Wyndham's uh, novel was about. Uh, They did a really good version on the BBC back around 1986 or so, which was a three-hour version that was – very close to the way the novel was. Oh, cool. I just, I literally just added that to my collection like a month ago. So I haven't got a chance to watch it yet. It's cool. And I've heard there's one or two more recent versions, but I have not yet searched or found them. Um, but that BBC version was very, very good. And then, of course, came Roger Corman, 1960, The Little Shop of Horrors. The, the famous movie that was filmed in like two days yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, starring Jonathan Hayes as uh, Seymour. That, that original black and white version is so funny and it has so many in-jokes that uh, you often have to – you often miss a lot of the jokes because you're laughing so hard. But that, of course, was the famous Audrey you know, Jr., um, the carnivorous plant that talked and made Seymour kill people and feed them to him. And then, of course, the, the big famous musical came out. And then Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you know, that was from the 1956 carnivorous, I'm sorry, pod people, you know, people hatching out of these pods that came from outer space. Yeah. Um, and duplicating them. I actually, I, I have considered writing a book called Invasion of the Little Shop of Triffids because I have I have about a hundred uh, movies and TV shows that deal with monster plants. You know, yeah, that would be great. There's a lot. Have you seen The Ruins? 
Yes. yes. I hated the book. The book drove me crazy, but I loved the movie. And the movie was a, a, a fun, you know, kind of a almost like a 1950s style. It wasn't it wasn't quite as 50s style as Tremors, but it was I, I liked it. Was it was horrifying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was horrifying. No, it was a, it's a monster movie. It's a scary movie. But I mean, I, I just yeah. thought they did a good job. It was it, it was a classic people in peril because of, of, of a monster. And in this case, the monster is a really scary plant. Yes, yes. (laughs) That's cool. Well, you know, speaking of monsters, I guess, Karen, you want to take us home here? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, we we normally end our uh, shows by asking our guests, what's your favorite monster? So sorry we didn't prep you for that question, but. Oh, boy, that's another one where I could say whichever one I'm looking at. (laughs) I'm a monster movie fanatic. That's probably my second biggest hobby after growing carnivorous plants. But boy, my favorite, I would have to say the original Godzilla or Gohira, that and King Kong. Oh, yeah. Um, Those were the ones that influenced me as a little child. Most of the rest of the Godzilla movies I thought were all cartoonish, you know, but the original version and the original King Kong uh, just blew me away. Those are great answers. What you you live in California? Yeah, we're about an hour north of San Francisco on the coast, Sonoma County. Did you ever get a chance to go meet Forrest Ackerman and go to the Acker Mansion? No, no, isn't he? I think he was down near Los Angeles. He is. He was. He was in L.A. near, kind of near Griffith Observatory. Yeah. No, I've done other things though. Uh, at the fiftieth anniversary for the birds, I. Uh, Met Tippy Hedren. She came up to Bodega Bay, which is only about 20 minutes from me. Nice. And I spent about half an hour having a wonderful chat with Veronica Cartwright. Boy, what a wonderful actress and what a wonderful character she is. She played the little girl in The Birds, and she's still making movies. She was an alien, you know? Yeah, yeah. She was a fantastic actress. But that's the closest I've gotten to any kind of monsters in a, you know, movie setting. Yeah, I understand. You would have loved it if you'd gotten to go, you know, he, he passed away. I yeah, love but- Famous Monsters magazine and everything that Forey Ackerman did. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was a hoot. He was a hoot. And so approachable. I mean, we, we used to see him at convention. He used to come out to Dragon Con here in Atlanta. And, uh, you know, you'd always see him in a Hawaiian shirt. Just a joy to talk to. Really? And he knew, knew <laughs> so much, knew so uh-huh. many people. So, yeah. <laughs> well, wow. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I yes, totally enjoyed you. it. Peter, thank this you. was fascinating. We'll have to have you on again. You, you know so much, and there's just so much to talk about with this topic. Well, well, thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. And I've listened to some of your podcasts. I intend to go back and listen to a lot more of them. Well, thank you. Thank when you. did you actually start this show? 2009. So you got some time on your hand, I guess. <laughs> whoa. whoa. <laughs> How many have been done in total? Uh, two, Over 234. Yeah, I think we're in the 230s. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. That's great. Well, that'll certainly keep me occupied. I will. Uh, I listened to a okay. few of them. I really enjoyed them. The one on bacteria and on oh, big, yes. Bigfoot, you know. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I will definitely, you know, keep in touch and get yes, more. please do. Well, thanks a lot. And we'll put in the show notes how to get in touch with you as well and your book. And uh, if people want to buy some plants, your shop. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So. Thank you very, very much. I appreciate that.
will rid the world of insects with beautiful, beautiful killer plants. That's <laughs> sounds like fun. <laughs> All well, right. Thank you. Thanks this again. was great. Thanks everybody. Have a have a good day. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with plant expert Peter Diamato, author of The Savage Garden and CEO of California Carnivores, an online shop specializing in these fascinating plants that eat animals. Links to Peter's book and his store are in the show notes. Monster Talk is proudly a part of the Airwave network of podcasts, home of such shows as Wild Black, Subtext, and Into the Impossible. Check out these and other shows at Airwave Media or on your podcast platform of choice. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. Thanks so much for listening to our show and sharing it with your friends. Monster House presentation. Every household in America, thousands of you eating. That's what you had in mind all along, isn't it? No shit, Sherlock. We're not talking about one hungry plant here. We're talking about world conquest. And I want to thank you. You're not going to get away with this. Your kind never does. <laughs> I don't care what it takes. Only one of us gets out of here alive.